privilege to worship together and now open up God's Word. Please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. We're going to see today Saul's conversion and call, how he is a chosen instrument of God. And we're going to specifically see how Jesus chooses unlikely suspects. And when he does so, he does so by his grace so that they would live their whole life for God's purposes. So if you would, please stand with me. I'm going to read Acts 9, verses 1 through 22. We stand to read the word of God in honor of God and his word. I like to say this is the only perfect part of the worship service. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision. A man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength 
and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Lord God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, we bow before you. We are, we are needy beggars, unworthy of the crumbs from your table. Because of your blood, because of your love and mercy and grace, we are able to be seated with you in the heavenly places. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness to us. And I pray that you would open our hearts to you and your word. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Ever look at someone and think, no way could they ever become a Christian? We all do, right? You ever doubt a professing believer's testimony? Like they tell their story and you're like, mm, I'm not sure about that. Seems that we are pre-wired to suspiciousness. And sometimes we have good reason to be suspicious. Politicians seem to just claim it to get votes. Notable celebrities like to thank Jesus but don't seem to live in line with the word of God. But even friends, today's Valentine's Day, they may give you a Valentine that says, I love you, they might hate you. When I was a brand new believer in the early 1980s, as a college student, the big deal then was that you put a Christian fish on your car, a sticker. Not just a sticker, but a raised one, you know, that was kind of silver. And uh, I got one for my 73 Pontiac Firebird. And I'm telling you, I remember thinking to myself, hey, there's a Christian because someone had a Christian fish on their car. It, until my, my Firebird got stolen and some guy's driving around with my car with a Christian fish and he was not a believer. <laughs> but today what we're going to see is that God is not hindered by our lack of faith or by our ridiculous reasoning. Acts 9, 1 through 22 tells us how Jesus saved Saul. And how God leading people to faith in Christ makes someone a Christian. Now, I love the book of Acts. Loving preaching through this book. The book of Acts tells us of Christ's work through his witnesses for his purposes. I, I hope that a lot of you are able to just say that when I start saying that because I say it so often. But Acts is foundational. It is transitional history over the first 30 years of the church is a bridge between the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament. And it is a description of Christ's work through his witnesses for his purposes. It is not a blueprint. It's not a blueprint of everything that we're supposed to do as the church. It tells us what God did in and through them. And it is, it is stuffed with lots of things that God wants to do in and through us. There are five big themes in the book of Acts. First, the risen, reigning, returning Lord Jesus Christ, front and center. Second, the Holy Spirit, very prominent in this book. Third, the all-sufficient Word of God. Fourth, God's chosen witnesses. And fifth, God's sovereign purposes. Those are the overarching themes in this book. Now, I've done this a couple times. 
since I've been preaching through this book, but I want to do it again today. I want to do a lightning round review of Acts very quickly, letting you see where we've been and how we got here today. So chapter 1, the ascended Lord reigns from heaven, continues his work through his witnesses. He calls them. They're actively waiting in the upper room for what he promised. They're obedient. They're prayerful. They're seeking his will. They're searching scripture. Matthias is chosen to replace Judas. Chapter 2, the reigning Lord pours out the Holy Spirit who indwells believers permanently for salvation and fills believers uh, in an ongoing way with power for, for ministry. Peter stands up on the day of Pentecost. He explains the word of God. He exalts Christ. He exposes sin and he exhorts the people to repent And the Lord adds to his church, 3,000 souls are saved. And the church devotes itself to the word of God, to fellowship, also known as caring and sharing community, breaking of bread, communion, which we're going to celebrate today, and trusting God in prayer. Chapter 3, signs and wonders. Healing at the beautiful gate jumpstarts intense persecution. More people are saved. We see Peter preaching repentance in Solomon's portico. Chapter 4, they're still preaching Jesus, and they're preaching him as the only name by which we must be saved. The church is responding to persecution, and they are having everything in common. Chapter 5, the death of Ananias and Sapphira. God purifies his church, will not allow sin to infect. But the believers continue to rejoice in their suffering because they're counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Chapter 6, a complaint arises. The Jewish widows from Gentile lands are being overlooked, so they choose seven servants, the prototype of modern-day deacons, and they're chosen to meet the need. And what you see is church unity, leadership responsibilities, and fruitful ministry. The word of God increases. Gospel preaching is being blessed. The disciples multiply People are getting saved. The Spirit is transforming people by the Word of God. Chapter 7. The preaching and the death of the first martyr, Stephen. And it leads to an intense, huge movement of the gospel from Jerusalem out to Judea and Samaria. Scattered church equals scattered gospel reaches more people. You see in Stephen's life, God is glorified through his witness who faithfully carries his word. Chapter 8, Philip preaches in Samaria. The scattered church is out there. He's preaching in Samaria. And then God leads him to give the gospel to an Ethiopian way out in the desert. And you see Jesus' mission now going to the ends of the earth. Now Acts 1.8 is, is, is being realized where Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. How God uses his chosen instruments, chosen servants, to reach those he has chosen. The word testifies to this. And it brings us to our passage today, where we see Saul being saved, how Jesus chooses a very unlikely suspect, by his grace, so that he would live his life to fulfill God's purposes. And that's exactly what Saul did. We know him as Paul. Paul is the the Roman uh, 
version of Saul. But the church's worst persecutor is now going to become its most vocal proclaimer. You've got the fiercest opponent of Christ becoming the most faithful proponent of Christ. It's like your worst enemy becoming your best friend. You can't even imagine it. Last week, we saw three interconnected realities that God orchestrates in the salvation of a sinner. Number one, God's sovereignty in salvation. We talk a lot about that because it's in the Bible a lot. And God is is sovereign in salvation. Uh, Salvation is a sovereign act of God. So we see that. And then secondly, we see believers' responsibility in evangelism. We saw Philip last week. Today we'll see Ananias. And then third, unbelievers' accountability to God for their sin. God's sovereignty does not absolve you of your accountability before him for your sin. And you see that in the Ethiopian eunuch's life. We're going to see this today in Saul's life. And what we see in these interconnected realities is the ways and means that God uses to save people are not in conflict. We create all sorts of conflict in our hearts and our minds, but the ways and means God uses to save are not in conflict. They are friends. They're cooperating in God's purposes. And we're seeing the same thing today with Jesus' interactions with Ananias and Saul. And the passage breaks down very neatly, really, into three parts. Verses 1 through 9, you see Jesus arresting the arrester. Jesus arresting the arrester. Verses 10 through 16, Jesus convinces the reluctant. Ananias is reluctant to help Saul. And then verses 17 through 22, Jesus uses his chosen instrument. And really, you can put that in the plural. Jesus uh, uses his chosen instruments. He is using Ananias, and then he begins to use Saul. So that's where we're going today. And so let's look at verse 1. First of all, verses 1 through 9, God arrests the arrester. Saul is breathing, literally living in the environment where his whole mindset His whole purpose is to destroy Christians and to to destroy Christ, really. He is breathing threats and murder against the Lord's people. He hates Christians. He is opposed to Jesus as a person can get. And he goes to the high priest, he goes to his religious ruler, and he asks permission to go to the synagogues of Damascus. So Christians have been scattered out from Jerusalem. And and Saul's goal is to destroy as many of them as he can. And it looks as if he picks the furthest that they went. This is 160 miles away. And he says, I want to go all the way to Damascus. He's going to take a lot of time, a lot of energy to do this. And I want to arrest Christians. He calls them people of the way. We get that from John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he wants to arrest Christians and bring them all tied up back to Jerusalem, presumably to put them on trial and probably kill them as they did Stephen. So he wants to destroy the church. In fact, after he's saved, and he's start, the Holy Spirit uses him to write a lot, of, a lot of books in the New Testament, his own testimony is 
He wanted to destroy the church. He wanted to do a lot of things bad against Jesus and against his followers. This was his whole mindset. So he's breathing out threats and murder. And he gets permission to go all the way to Damascus, 160 miles away, to extradite these believers. So he's on his way. Verse 3, he's on his way, and he's approaching the city of Damascus. Damascus had been around a long time. It was a city in the time of Abraham. And so he's coming to the city, and all of the sudden, it's broad daylight, but a light shines, and it's a light um, brighter than the sun, and it shines around him, and he falls to the ground. You know, it's like, I picture like a nuclear flash or something, or this, you know, I don't know, a huge bolt of lightning, I don't know, but uh, it's, it's brighter than the sun. And he falls to the ground, and he hears a voice. Now, his traveling companions can't hear the voice, but he hears this voice, and here's what it says, Saul, Saul. Now, when God addresses humans in the Bible, often he repeats their name twice for emphasis, gets their attention. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So we know this is Jesus arresting the arrester. Jesus is initiating contact. He's getting his attention. Now think about this for a moment. Here is Saul, who had been so violent against Christians. And now he is very violently shown how bad, how how heinous his crimes are. And they're not against Christians, they're against Jesus. Do you notice that Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is what is happening to Saul. The the unpardonable sin is refusing to believe in Jesus and be saved, refusing to love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, if you are truly saved, if you are truly converted, then you will be convicted of that sin in your life because that's the sin that separates people from God. So verse 5, Saul asked this question, who are you? Who are you, Lord? And the answer I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Jesus tells him, get up, go into the city, you're going to receive instructions. It's like the greatest race, you know, but now you're going to be blind and, um, and you're really messed up. Uh, everyone with him, by the way, is like speechless because they see what's happening, but they don't hear anything that he's hearing. So Saul gets up, verse 8, he gets up and his eyes are open, but he's blind. He cannot see. And they lead him by the hand into the city of Damascus. And he's blind for three days in a row and he is so messed up he doesn't eat or drink. Can you imagine? Here is Saul who is in charge. He's got letters. He's got permission to arrest any Christians he finds. And, and if you remember back into earlier, uh, like in chapter 8, he was going into homes, doing home invasions, and dragging Christians out of their homes. And now he's immobilized. Now he, he's no longer 
thinking about going into Damascus to grab Christians and put them in jail. He's just thinking, what's going on? I'm blind. What happened to me? Well, he knows what happened. He got saved by Jesus. The sovereign act of God. God arrests him. He regenerates him, gives him new life. He cracked through his dead soul and gave him life. Okay, now we pause and we go to the next scene. So we leave him there and he's not eating, he's not drinking, he's blind for three days, he's in Damascus. Now you go to verses 10 through 16 where Jesus convinces a reluctant disciple. There is this disciple in Damascus named Ananias, not the one who died in chapter 5, not the high priest anointed by Herod that's in chapter 23. This is a godly disciple who ends up baptizing Saul, Paul. And the Lord says to Ananias in a vision, by the way, Ananias means God is gracious. God is gracious. In fact, he's going to show him just how gracious he is. He says to him in a vision, verse 11, go to Straight Street. This is in Damascus. Go to the house of a guy named Judas, and you're going to find there a man from Tarsus named Saul who's praying. He's praying. And then he tells him in verse 12, he has seen a vision of you coming in and putting your hands on him so that he can get his sight back. So God is giving him very specific instructions and and he's understandably shocked at the idea. And so he answers in verse 13, you know, time out. (laughs) God, I've heard a lot about this guy. He's done a lot of evil to your people in Jerusalem and he has authority to arrest me. I mean, he's coming for Ananias and others like him. Presumably, Ananias was one of the leaders in the Damascus church when, when, when Paul got saved. In fact, this story of his conversion in chapter 9 is not the only time you hear it in the book of Acts. You hear Paul talking to people about his own testimony in chapter 22 and 26. And in chapter 22, he even says about Ananias that he's a devout man who was spoken well of by everyone in the church. So presumably, he's a leader in the church, and Ananias is saying, look, he's done a lot of evil. He's got authority to even arrest me. And here's the key verse, verse 15. Here's what God says to him. This is what Jesus says to him. He says, go. There's your believer's responsibility in evangelism. He is a chosen instrument of mine. There's God's sovereignty and salvation. John 15, 16, Jesus told his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Go, he's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. There's unbelievers' accountability to God for their sin. They're going to hear the gospel from Paul's mouth. And then verse 16, He says, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for me. Now, if you're a believer and and you've come to faith in Christ, I hope that when someone shared the gospel with you, you also heard that suffering was part of the picture. If not, they left that out and you're like, why am I suffering? It's because it's a part of life. What, What Jesus is saying is, you're going to have a ministry for the gospel and you're going to suffer for me. So he saves Saul and he tells him very clearly, you're going to serve me and you're going to suffer and right away you see it happen right away you see him preaching christ and right away people are we're going to see it next week that he's persecuting him for his faith in christ 
Now we get to the third movement in this passage, verses 17 through 22. And you see God using his chosen instrument. You see him using Ananias and Saul. So verse 17, Ananias obeys God's direct command. And the human response would be, no way is this murdering villain going to become a new creation. No way has he gotten saved. But he goes in, he lays his hands on Saul, and amazingly he says these words, Brother Saul. You're no longer my feared opponent. You're my brother in Christ. Wow. He says, the Lord Jesus appeared to you, sent me to help you be filled with the Holy Spirit. I've said this a lot as I'm teaching, preaching through Acts, but if you're a believer, when you came to faith in Christ, you were filled with the Holy Spirit. You were baptized by the Holy Spirit. In, in this transitional period in the church, this was sometimes necessary to have uh, basically a validation of a person's salvation. Especially in, in, in the case of Saul and Paul. You, you know in his letters subsequently, a lot of people are, are questioning whether he's really saved or whether he's really an apostle. But here he, here he says, Brother Saul, the, the key... In, these, in this verse is Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. So God has saved him, and when did he save him? Not when Ananias talked to him, but back on the road when Saul replied, Who are you, Lord? Who are you? Well, I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And in, in, that, in that moment, God made the dead man live, and verse 18 says that right away when he's talking to Ananias he could see and and then he gets baptized so now the one who wanted to to kill Christians is now fully identifying with Christians by the way there's no surprise baptisms today last week we had five people baptized praise God Uh, we are going to have baptisms on Easter though so you can plan ahead for that but he gets baptized he now fully identifies with the one he tried to destroy Now, when he's given his testimony in Acts 22, verse 16, he tells us that Ananias told him to get up and get baptized. He was instructed to do so, and so he did, professing his faith in Christ. Can you picture it? He's literally going to Jerusalem, you know, wearing an Oakland Raiders jersey. And he gets there, and he puts on like a Rams jersey. It's like UCLA and USC or something. Imagine them switching teams. He switches teams. And, and he stays in Damascus with the disciples, and they see a changed man. Because what they see in verse 20, he's immediately proclaiming Christ. That's what Christians do. They proclaim Christ. So there's fruit of being filled with the Spirit here. And in the synagogues, he is saying, Jesus is the Son of God. That's huge. Not only was he doing uh, the preaching of the gospel, but he was calling Jesus something very significant. This is the first and only time that Son of God is used as a title for Jesus in the book of Acts. Marks him out as the true representative of of the Israel of God and of God's kingdom, the promised Messiah, but it's not 
just an official title jesus used this title for himself to to reflect his unique relationship and fellowship with the father and and what do you see very prominently in paul's epistles paul's letters the central character of of christ's divine sonship very prominent this is big he's saying jesus is god everyone who hears Saul preaching is amazed they're thinking to themselves they're saying you know this guy was mayhem incarnate this guy wanted to mess Christians up but he's not doing that he's acting like one of them he's wearing their jersey and people are amazed at the change that God brings about in this in this new heart Verse 22 tells us he increases all the more in strength. He's growing as a believer. And he confounds the Jews in Damascus. So those who he used to be on their team, now he's telling them, no, Jesus is the Christ. In fact, it says he proves it. He proves that Jesus is the Christ. He has a real conversion experience, and there is now fruitfulness in ministry for Christ. And it's very clear. Jesus chose him, a very unlikely suspect, and he chose him by his sovereign good grace, for his sovereign good pleasure, so that Saul would live his life to fulfill God's sovereign good purposes. This is, this is what happened. He, Jesus arrests the arrester, he convinces the reluctant Ananias, and then he uses them both for gospel ministry. There are five great takeaways from Jesus saving Saul. I'll give them to you in order. Number one, it's about sovereignty, about God's sovereignty. You've got to remember this, that God seeks to save and initiates everything. You might think back to when you became a believer, and you might think back about the, the, the sequence of events and, and what actually happened when, when, when God opened your eyes to the gospel truth. But what you know is that God initiates and then sustains what he starts. He chooses you. He draws you to himself in his mercy and grace. And then he keeps you saved. You don't have to keep yourself saved. He keeps you saved. Now this is a pretty dramatic conversion. Some of you are like, you know, I don't have a great story to tell. Bummer for you. (laughs) Um... Saul did. <laughs> um, and here's what I want you to know. Seriously, here's what I want you to know. Every conversion is miraculous. Some are more dramatic than others. But the one you've got is the one you've got. doesn't matter if you say, well, it's boring. Well, it's miraculous. If Jesus saved you, that's miraculous. Salvation is a sovereign act of God. So don't sell yourself short because you don't have some you know, crazy story to tell. You might say, when I was five years old, my mom shared Christ with me, and I came to know Christ, and I, I, uh, I was saved. You might say, when I was 15 years old, I, I was, uh, went to a youth group, and I heard them preaching Christ, and I was saved, and then I went and told my family. You might say, when I was 20 years old, I was in college. That's my story. God broke through my stony, dead heart and convicted me of my sins. I turned to Jesus and was saved. You might say when I was 50 years old, you know, God had to crush me and crush my pride. 
But whatever the case, it is God's doing by his choice. And I do believe there is a correlation between the magnitude of your sin and the forcefulness of God's dealings. That the more entrenched you are in sin, the more years that go by, that the more force is needed to break your, your pride, your, your, your sinful, stony heart. It's like breaking a rock and there's a huge boulder that's just stuck. You need dynamite for that one. The more ingrained you are in your sins when coming to faith in Christ, I think determines how much breaking is needed. So a child can hear the gospel and say, wow, praise God, I, I, want, I want Jesus in my life. But a 40-year-old might be saying, no, 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 no. Look, as a, college, as a high school student, I made fun of Christians. I, I did persecute Christians in my own ridiculous way. But sometimes, as a friend of mine said, sometimes God cracks the toughest nut in the basket to get to the rest. And it is all a result of Jesus' initiative. It's, if you're saved, it's because you had an encounter with Jesus. By the way, this was the last resurrection appearance of Jesus, post-resurrection appearance of Jesus before he returns. 1 Corinthians 15, 8 tells us that. But if you're saved, it's not a matter of, well, I just feel bad over my sins from the past. Or, you know, I learned some truths about God. Or, hey, I had an emotional experience. It's a conscious acceptance on your part. As you're convicted by the Holy Spirit, you, you accept the claims of Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and exalted, and returning. Some of you might be sitting here today going, I've never been converted. I've been saying I'm a Christian, but that never happened to me. You want to make sure. Authentic conversion always happens, always involves an encounter with Jesus himself through his spirit who convicts people of the truth of their sin and the truth of the gospel. And God turns enemies into friends, turns persecutors into servants. So first and foremost, we see sovereignty. Secondly, we see authority, the lordship of Christ, and and that ready obedience is a mark of new life. If you're a quick obeyer when you read the word, that's a mark of new life. You've got Saul's conversion, Saul's call here that he was going to bear Christ's name and suffer for Christ's name. Right away these things happen, but he obeys. Now you notice the contrast. He was going to synagogues. Verse 2 says he was going to synagogues to drag believers to prison. And now he's going to synagogues, verses 19 and 20, the same synagogues, to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus has the power to overcome any threat and has the power to make Saul his most devoted follower. Because Jesus opens people's hearts to the gospel so that they willingly yield to his authority. It was a dramatic turnaround for Saul. He's under the authority of the Lord Jesus. The ministry that takes place through Saul's life is, Paul's life is because he's Jesus' chosen instrument. He's his ambassador. He's, he's a representative and he bears the name of Christ. And, and from chapter 13 to the end of the book of Acts, Saul's story takes center stage. It starts with Peter as kind of the main human character. We have a brief bridge of Stephen and Philip, and then Saul takes it from there. Paul takes it from there. 
under the authority of the Lord Jesus. Later on, 1 Corinthians 12, he says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. You don't acknowledge the Lordship of Christ unless you've been born again by the Spirit of God. So we see sovereignty and authority, and also verse, uh, the, the third thing we see is humility. This is what God brings about in Saul's life, is humility, and that, that, that if you're a Christian, you should repent often and don't forget where you came from. Saul never forgot. Paul never forgot where he came from. He tells his testimony so many times in the New Testament about the kind of person he was, about his depravity. I think the awful you know, gravity of your own depravity ought to sober your soul. That only the blood of Jesus can rescue you. So rejoice in your new life. Don't wallow in your old one. A lot of people like, you know, like to think about their old life all the time. Realize it was God's sovereign grace that saved you if you're saved. Realize this, every person who comes to faith in Christ is an unlikely suspect. You should be shocked that Jesus would accept you into his family. Much like Mephibosheth in the Old Testament where King David wanted to to show kindness to one of the relatives of, of King Saul. And Mephibosheth was lame in his feet. He wasn't worthy to come before the king and he didn't just get brought into the king's presence but he he got to eat at the king's table and live as one of his sons for the rest of his life see god chooses on it based on his sovereign good pleasure not your presumed worthiness you have none it's all of grace that'll keep you humble and open to god saving anyone he chooses what did paul say i was shown mercy I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Well, God's mercies are new every morning. He's showing Ananias how merciful, how gracious he is. The gospel says your destiny depends on Jesus. Jesus is the only way of salvation. We as believers are called people of the way because he is the way. And it's, it's great comfort to know that God chose you and drew you to himself. But I think it's frightening. Just frightening, terrifying how often we profile people and look at them and and think that they're unworthy of the grace that we've received as if we had no sin what are we doing we think people are hopeless cases that would never bow before the lord jesus people would have said that about me 30 some years ago repent of your sin often I think that sometimes new believers are more obedient. They read something in the Bible, they go, I'm doing that. Seasoned believers are like, you know, I know how to explain that. So I don't know how to do, don't have to do that. Just remember where you came from. Paul did, Galatians 1, Acts 22, Acts 26, 1 Timothy 1, 1 Corinthians 15, and elsewhere. He talks about his life and what God did. I think the only appropriate position for us to take before God is humble like a child full of nothing but a desperate need for the Holy Spirit to show us and remind us of our neediness because whatever it is whatever it is without his work in and through you you can't do it the fourth thing we see this this takeaway a good takeaway is solidarity that you got to run with people of the way you got to run with Christians you, you don't don't do an enclave thing don't don't hibernate with Christians and never go out into the world but you got to be with believers you notice that in this passage Jesus himself 
stands and defends his church. He stands with you, so we need to stand together. Saul thought he had to do a lot of bad things against Jesus, but now he's trying to do as much good as he can to everyone, especially Christ's church. That should be our mindset. How much good can I do towards fellow believers? And maybe you've slipped and fallen in this area. Maybe you've turned into that person that always judges fellow believers. Maybe you're doing that to people in this assembly. You can change that. Repent of your sins, reconcile, do what God expects and enables and empowers believers to do. To stand with believers, you need to be with believers often. So thanks for coming today. And don't run off right afterwards. You need to engage with some people in their life. Ask them how they're doing. And the last thing I want to mention is um, opportunity. Opportunity. That we ought to relish the chance to serve the gospel to anyone, anytime, anywhere. That's what Saul did. That's what Paul did. And Ananias, yes, was reluctant about the God-given privilege of helping Saul. He was. We've been talking a lot about your super eight, your eight closest neighbors. Prayer, care, share. Now, obviously, if you're a child um, or a youth, you might not know your neighbors as well as your parents do. Maybe it's your eight closest classmates or teammates. Maybe if you live on a farm and there's, you know, the nearest people are five miles away from you, then maybe it's your eight co- closest co-workers, uh, whichever fits best for you. But are you nervous about that when I bring it up? Are you apprehensive about that? I am. We all are. So let's just own it, kind of lean into it, and go, okay, with Jesus, all things are possible. And those neighbors that I haven't talked to in a couple years, maybe I need to mend some fences first, but I want to I pray for them and care for them and share because, you know what? God put you in the geographical location that you're in for a reason put you in your office you're in and in the classroom you're in and on the team you're on for a reason so pray often that God would open hearts to the gospel and that people would believe in Jesus and say a simple heartfelt prayer for those who have not come to faith in Christ and it was very easy for us to look at people and say they are enemies for the sake of the gospel because they are but when someone turns to the Lord and is saved they are now your brother and sister in Christ that you can worship with that you can encourage that you can love and pray for but, but you know what it takes someone to go and be a friend and then not to get a notch on your belt but so that God would be glorified and that believers would have joy and that people would be saved you would actually share the gospel with those in need 